sounds very complicated and unachievable. Um, and yet it was achieved. And yet it was achieved. Welcome to the EGS podcast. I am your host, as always, Tom Gemmell. Joining me is the marvellous Jason Green. And uh, today's episode, we're mainly going to be talking about our main project, Quicksmith. Uh, this is definitely the brainchild of Jason. So I'm going to be structuring this more as I'm going to be asking a lot of questions um, and then hopefully the answers give us a good bit of context about the game. And uh, I suppose my first question, as you would expect, is Jason, where did you get up the idea for Quicksmith? Where did it come from and where did the whole thing start really? So initially, uh, this was during our last year of university, we, we had the inkling because this wasn't even governed by the the university, they told us we were, had a class, and we didn't really know what was in it. But me being proactive, spoke to a few other students, and they said, right, you're making a game that is, it's going to be a prototype, and you've got to bash this out in eight weeks. Mm-hmm. So I was like, great, we'll think of some ideas. And I think uh, me and Jack spent a bit of time brainstorming two or three different ideas. And this was just about the time that the game played up came on out on Steam. Yeah. Now, initially when we saw that game, we me and Jack played a lot of it. I think we must have put you know, every day in after uni for a couple of hours straight for What was a it few about weeks. Playtub that sort of drew you to it? Um I think initially it was the the comical art style, uh and then the yeah. co op cooperative play. Both mm-hmm. me and Jack love co op games that are working together to get things done. We've played Overcooked and Overcooked 2, although that had a bit more of issues with, um, we had to play it through Steam Play, whereas uh, we both got the game Overcooked, uh, sorry, played up, and we gave it a go. It was quite fun. Something that I think we both pointed out a lot was the main menu and how you kind of interacted with it and mm-hmm. messed around and you could kind of almost look like you were slapping your friends type thing. Um, and then, yeah, it was just like this chaotic run a kitchen um, game where you try and serve as many customers as you can in a day. And from that, we were kind of in the in the mindset of, well, I like medieval sort of genre fantasy style. So blacksmithing came to mind. Hmm. Like it's basically cooking, but with metals instead yeah. of yeah. ingredients. So we were playing that game, thinking about it, and we were talking about a masterclass session that's come up. And we're like, I think a blacksmithing version would be really good. We've seen Overcooked, we've seen many other, I can't remember them off the top of my head, but there's quite a lot of cooking yes. games out there. Yeah. And I think even in like MMOs and stuff like that, cooking is a massive part of a lot of games. And I think people put a lot of emphasis on the, the crafting side of it because cooking is very step-by-step process and it's something we do in our day-to-day lives so yeah. it's easy to adapt to a lot of things like even most fantasy games will have like a potion mechanic of some kind yeah yeah, yeah so we were looking at that and kind of going well blacksmithing's another good element for again mmos rpgs and stuff yeah. that's used but it's never really used in a crafting way it's always mine 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 smelt it put it together uh, and then craft this thing and it's very quick it doesn't really go through the steps of making a handle, making a blade. I think a lot of games just literally plop a weapon in front of you. And it's like, there you go. So well, who made it? How'd and they most of the it? time you'll kind of make that thing for your own character. 
mm. rather than like serving it to customers or yeah. anything like that, like in a traditional cooking game. Yeah. So we took the idea of plate up and overcooked, and we 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 built the idea of a um, of the blacksmithing and put that into it. There was a few major tweaks that we had to deal with very early on. So both with well, plate plate up doesn't uh, sorry overcooked doesn't have customers in the map as much as what plate up does but it was still based around things like cleaning a plate and serving up a plate which is very different from blacksmithing uh one of the the first things we identified is with plate up they had two separate areas so you had where the customers would sit and Mm -hmm. you could design that area and then you'd have the kitchen where you could design everything and one of the issues we actually ran into ourselves was some of the rooms felt very small so it was like very jam packed. Yep. You couldn't really like get around each other. So we wanted to make that a bit of bigger of an emphasis. So we completely took away the idea of the uh, the dining area, and we're like, "That's fine," because you know you don't need to sit down and wait for your sort, do you? Yeah, they usually <laughs> take quite a while to make. <laughs> so we just we did away with, with that, and we're like, "Right, okay." So we've got big kit. We've got a big preparation um, area, and what's all the stages? So initially we thought about like um, going really in depth of like, well, chopping down a tree and carving the woods and stuff like that. And we're like, well, let's not go too crazy. Let's not go too mad. We'll keep it simple to begin with. We'll have individual uh, stations that allow you to do an operation, create the next part. Um, Modelling on from there, we mainly then had to start thinking about USP. So for those who don't know, unique selling point. What makes us different? Because as much as a blacksmithing game is different to a cooking game, slapping a different skin on the same game isn't as... Still um, the same gameplay, pretty much. Yeah. So um, when we were kind of building this idea, we had to really think hard about, like, well, what could we add that doesn't make it too complicated, um, but then doesn't make it too simple either, uh, too similar? And... One of the things that we talked about, again, with playtops, one of the things we didn't like about the game was its research. So every at the end of every day, you could, um, you could put an object in a cabinet and that would save it. And if you bought a research table, you could then upgrade that item to change it into something else or to change it into something better, which was a lot of waiting and randomness. And you, you'd spend a lot of time trying to get the thing that you wanted. And it would really inhibit your playthrough yeah um and it kind of gave you very little control and it could literally be i mean as much as it was all seed generated so sometimes you could kind of like put the correct seed in and it would give you the right stuff it was very potluck of whether you'd even be able to finish an entire sort of 15 day run that plate up is built around so it'd be unintentionally quite a bit of luck involved yes yeah. Um, so we wanted to kind of strip a little bit of that away and make it more player controlled. Mm. So we came up with the idea of a research tree, um, much similar to like a lot of RPG games where you have talents and you start with one and that unlocks two and then you build your path and you kind of choose which direction you're going to go through. We wanted to do that where we bring in the idea of you unlock upgrades to what you want to upgrade and they will then subsequently unlock more upgrades so you can kind of build the improvements of your workshop yourself yes it's still a little bit of skill base you're going to have to earn coins and 
do as well as you can to benefit the most off of it. It's still not going to be every everything is handed to you, but it means that you get to decide how the game plays out. So, yeah, so if you, you can want, get quite strategic about it. Yeah. yeah. Something I really love about um, talent trees in most games, as much as most games end up being very cookie-cutter in the sense that this is the best build, every bum meta do it, I really love the idea of, well, this is my branch, but mm. you can go this way. You could do this one, and it's different. And as much as it's only minor differences, it can make a big difference. I remember playing... World of Warcraft the first time, when they had builds that were actually different but did the same thing, like DPS versus DPS, it was just a playstyle difference. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, I like to run around as fast as I can and attack things as quick as possible. Cool, there's a build for that. Oh, but I want to do massive hits in like really big, powerful strikes. Yeah. Cool, there's a build for that. And that's the kind of way I want talent trees to go. It's very difficult because I think there's a balancing issue in development... Yes. But you're really trying to incentivize player agency yes. within the game, especially with a uniquely custom upgrade tree. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and that's kind of where we um, started with. So that masterclass project that we we uh, proactively kind of got, well, what we got to do here, we spent, because this just started in the January of yeah. that year, and we spent pretty much all over Christmas planning the GDD, the game design document, and sort of trying to plan it out. And this was definitely something in our class that we had the edge above other people. Definitely. We yeah. we came into that first day, and I think you pretty much joined us just bef just as we'd finished sort of the GDED. So you knew yeah, we had a much, game. Ready. I pretty much joined you day one. There was actually a module that we was talking about yeah. at university. So obviously you guys knew about it beforehand. I knew that there was a group project. But I, didn't, I, I didn't really think about it too hard. It was like, oh, well, I'll just, uh, I'll figure it out on I'll the day. I'll turn Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was suggested in that first week. And again, like, you're told eight weeks to make a game. And it's not eight, seven days, however yes. many hours that yeah. is. It's at best, I mean, they recommended 50 hours a week. I think most of us capped at about 20 hours with personal responsibilities and stuff like that per week. So it's not even a full time. And you were still doing your dissertation at the time yeah. as well and other uni modules. So. Yeah, so we, we couldn't dedicate as much time as you know, you'd want to, but that was a very short amount of time to try and get a good prototype done. And our preparation, even by... Like, I bought the asset pack with uh, a little bit of money I had from Christmas. So I was like, we'll, we'll, we'll make sure we don't have to design some 3d models to to yeah. quickly uh shout out to cindy store <laughs> ever since we've been using their packs i've been seeing other games pop up other indie games that use the same packs yeah i mean and i'm, I'm also like immediately intrigued by those other games because we both like share a common denominator there so it's like oh, how, how did you use them so yeah. like it's like it's the same pack but it's a completely different type of game yeah like it'll be a mobile game that does something else and it'll be like an endless runner mm. so i didn't even think about that no. so that's <laughs> amazing to see but yeah no, so you bought the pack yeah so we bought the pack just before christmas and then that first week we were already ready to develop mm. we we knew the mechanics we knew the the layout we knew the tools that we needed Whereas most other people in our class were just trying to design a game. And yeah. I mean, I did try to emphasize to people that this is going to be a module that you might want to get on top of. But 
students will be students at the end of the day. Everyone leaves everything to last minute. And, like, we literally walked into the classroom, sat down, listened to the first hour of this the lecturer sort of talking about what this module is. We're like, yeah, we know, mate. Uh, <laughs> I even I even proactively emailed him a copy of the game design document and said, can you give this a once over? Yeah. And what what made me laugh the most is his immediate response was, this sounds very complicated and unachievable. Um, and yet it was achieved. And yet it was achieved. And that was something that uh, he, he was very impressed by us because, again, and it was, we were proactive. Yeah, uh, and not to mention, and very, uh, I had very jealous classmates that our team consisted of two programmers, with most other groups didn't even have one. Yeah, and that was purely because of the connections and the the relations that we'd made. That there was a little group of us, two programmers, two designers, and then obviously you coming in at that last minute. As as a five, we were very a good bunch of people to kind of get along with each other and get this project done. And everyone was quite equally proactive as well. Yeah. Like I would kind of log into the Discord and kind of see something even new or something articulating with another team member about something. Yeah. Pretty much most days. And I remember like sort of like the first two, three weeks, you would just log into the Discord and kind of go, oh, okay, there's like three notifications in this channel, four notifications in the <laughs> other channel, five in the other. And it wasn't until like the last sort of week or two when it really started dying down and that was sort of like your polishing phase. So obviously there isn't as much things to work yeah. on. And then the good thing about having two programmers was that was when they had a, a real good time to shine as well. It was like the bug fixing and, and then we could play test and other things like that. Yeah, I mean, most of their projects throughout the year have been very minimal. This was something I think both of them could put some pride into mm. because as much as a lot of the programming classes were here, do this, as much as you've got to make it yourself... It's kind of, there's only one way to do it, so we'll do it together. This was a new element of creating a game that neither of them knew the mechanics of. Neither of them knew exactly how everything worked. Yeah. And I even remember reading through some of their scripts. And you can kind of see where some of it just works but doesn't. And like they've had to jerry-rig it a little bit. And like anybody knows programming, that's pretty much half the job anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, fake it till you make it. <laughs> and... Yeah, it was really good to see both Jonathan and Jack hard at work. They they put in the, probably the most hours together. They really put a lot of effort into making... I mean, we, we have a grid system built in that's on the backbones of everything. I really am mm. quite proud that we did that because it just made everything so much easier. And the grid system being... So the grid system is um, basically so that all of the objects are placed in a square and then when the character moves around when they look at a specific square in that grid the ray cast is shooting at it and it kind of goes this is the object i need to yeah. interact with so and just that stops a lot of the chaos yeah it stops the overlapping because yeah. like especially um in game development when you have a lot of objects they can clip into each other yeah and, uh, like so I, we don't think about it enough i think as people you've got a wall that has a physical physics to it, you know, stop yeah. your character from going through it, but then you have a table in front of that. And if you're looking yes. at yeah. both, which, which, and it's very easy to say, well, I'm clearly looking at the table, but nine times out of 10, your character model is looking in one direction. Yeah. So it's picking up what's first, what's in front of me and a table being slightly short or slightly tall, it could look over it. 
And for that kind of game, you kind of need it to pick up the right thing. So I think um, we've talked about a lot is we want that. You can pick up a work a state workstation and move it to where you want it to be. Again, going back to that player agency, we want you as the player to be in control of how the game works within reason. We set up the... Um, what are they called uh, circumstances, whatever, and you 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 sort of figure out how best they okay, work together, yes. sort of yeah. thing. Um, which I really like about the idea. I mean, the we haven't talked about the genre too much, but the roguelike element, which is what Playtop was built around, where yeah, you can play infinitely. It will never end until you bit, fail because sure, that will be a whole yeah. thing. Um, we really we really like that element of like you're not limited. And by your only limitations are your your ability to mm. work within the three. Obviously, there are certain limitations. Like you'll never get to the an infinite level in that game or in any game that's built around the roguelike element, because eventually it will get so difficult that it's impossible. Yeah. But the uh, them ideas of like, well, I only got to level, I only got to day four today. Oh, I'll try something different. I got to day seven this time. And it's just that achievement of keep mm. beating yourself, especially in co-op games, because you can really get that synergy with like the right person that you play with, where you can get to like day 15, day 20, day 100. And you're like, wow, look at this. And it's kind of almost one of those social elements that really um, brings in the competitive edge without having like a leaderboard in the mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. And I think those natural occurring ones are a lot better. Mm especially in terms of sort of like game development where stuff that is created by the players as a competitive especially is much more rewarding as a developer than stuff where well, we create the high leaderboard, this yeah. other person that's there, let's shout and praise them. The average person's never going to see the top of that leaderboard. But in your small group of friends, you might be the one that's got the most days. Yeah. That's that's a social part of it that I don't think that I think a lot of game developers overlook. It's like you really can't generalize everybody, but in everyone's little groups or people with tw- ten friends, five friends, two friends, you can always have that little competition between yourselves. Yeah. And I think that's a lot more realistic to kind of keeping people engaged and kind of keeping yeah. them going than having this leaderboard that says. I mean, one game that comes to my mind is stuff like Clash of Clans. Yep. they got a leaderboard on there. This top guy that's been playing the game since day one is obviously at the top. I'll never get the bases the same level as him. It's just it's just demotivates me to play it. Hmm. So, I mean, that's a topic of um, conversation because I think there's arguments for both, right? I think with a lot yeah. of things. Um, but I definitely prefer the idea of that player-made competitive edge. So having made the GDD uh-huh. based on sort of your experiences with Playtop. Yeah. The grid system that you were just talking about, I'm just thinking because that would have been, you would have implemented that because you could see how it would need to be added down the line and getting yeah. it in early would be helpful. Did you know that you was going to do a grid system before starting in that January? I think that was one of the. I weeks? think this was the very first conversation we had in right. that first okay. week because mechanics like picking up and placing down the objects, crafting handles, crafting blades, what materials to use were very easy to kind of iron out very quickly. Myself and Jonathan were really hot on um, 
how blacksmithing works in the real world, how long it takes to make bronze, how long mm. it takes to make iron, and kind of making the difficulty try to sort of seem somewhat realistic. Yeah. Also, like, using a crucible, using a, an anvil, a chopping station, things like that. Like, ironing out what was needed was very easy in, like, the physical sense. That grid was something that I think we talked about very early on. And we're like, how are we going to make sure that, one, everything is aligned... And then two, how everything interacts with each other. Because, uh, for instance, something we've talked about in um, uh, the very beginning was like, how are you going to get the ore that you can then smelt, that you can then turn into bars, that you can then turn into... Because you could have a massive rock face, you know, and you have to climb the rock face and then chip off the right piece. Yeah. But that would deter from that core element of like making it quick and snappy. And, yeah. Hence the name. Yeah. <laughs> but so so we kind of, so we had this, uh, instead we went with like a rock pile and I think we'll eventually sort of tune that more into like a quarry, um, a mine shaft type thing that sure. you just chip away for a minute at the rocks and then gain the ore. But you've then got to store that. Otherwise you're going to be holding it or you're going to have an inventory and then these yeah. are multiple layers and top things. So we added in the mining from the ore to then store it into a barrel. And I think in the end we used a cart for like a mine, mine shaft cart, type yeah. thing. Um, and that was great. But we were just like, well, have I got to mine it and then place it in? And again, that's just deterring from getting that core mechanic done. So we're just like, well, as you mine it, they fill up. Yeah. So it's just a case of this talks to that, but where is it? And as much as you can kind of do uh, object referencing where it can kind of be on one side of the map and it can talk to the other, it's a lot easier when you can kind of select a position and then be like, well, it's here, mm -hmm. go to there. And that's the same with like, uh, I think it was the combiner that we use. So the final mechanic of making the, the weapon, you, you, you gain the materials, you refine the materials, you make a handle, you make a sword, putting them together... We had the idea because once you've got these two objects, you can't put them on one square. Right. So we put we we came up with the idea of put one on one section and one on the other, interact with it, and that would combine them. Right. And that was yeah. then again uh, selecting the squares in the grid and kind of making them talk to each other to then um, move the object where it needed to be. So that must have been quite difficult to do. Well, I'm just thinking because I I, I I have little programming knowledge, so in my head I immediately went to, and I would do that um, by getting a guy on Google to help. Yeah. Me. Uh, well, I mean, this is this is kind of, I mean, we didn't get a guy on Google. This was all Jonathan's work. It was a separate tool that was need to be made. You you measure out the the distance of what each grid is going to be, and then you plot them like you would a graph in mm -hmm. some sense. And I think it took him a few hours to make it, but it was it was very much it's a crucial part of the whole system. Mm -hmm. As much as the player will never see it, yeah, they'll experience it because each workstation will fit in an exact grid. And when you pick up a workstation and move it to the other, you'll snap it back into another grid. And then the same with when you have objects and stuff like that, you're interacting with a specific square in that grid that is there hidden. Um, something that we did as an aesthetic thing for I think ourselves a little bit was we um, the floor pattern that we use mm. is actually the grid itself 
So as much as Is it? Okay, yeah. Yeah. so as much as it doesn't um, visibly show the grid, you can have a visual yes. representation. Yeah. And I think that's a very that makes a lot of sense now that I can see. <laughs> it's a nice attention to detail because at the moment in this stage we haven't got the object uh, the workstations moving in the grid yet. That's something that we're currently in developing. Um, but it makes it a lot easier for the player to then see that grid. Yes. So I can go, well, I can fit three workstations along here because I've got three squares. Yes. And yeah. I think as much as that was like a, an aesthetically self-pleasing thing for us, kind of going, yeah, that'll, that'll do good. It's worked out as like a, oh, that'll actually enable the player to understand I can fit three things along here, yeah. I can fit five. I can't remember what it's referred to because I remember our tutor would talk about it when... <laughs> the designer is able to show in the world how to do something. Affordance. Affordance, that's the one. (laughs) So that would, yeah, having that early and being able to do that for a late university project is pretty special to even consider. Yeah, I mean, I think as much as in our first episode we talked about a lot of the negatives from our class and hindsight is that there were a lot of things that could have been done better there were still some really good things that we were taught. Affordance, Most definitely. Yeah. Uh, affordance was a really good subject that I wanted to do for my dissertation. And one of the reasons I kind of didn't was because it was it was kind of said to me that affordance should always be there. That's and a good point. That's hard to argue against. That is hard to argue. Perhaps for another my, episode it, we should argue that. <laughs> in my opinion, it's one of the... Yes, it should be, but not a lot of people are. Yeah. So that was kind of my my dispute is like it is something that maybe it should be talked about more often to make sure that it's not just being complacency, you know, because, mm. again, every ugh, I'm trying to think more specific stuff, but like I could really sit here and say, well, let's talk. Let's make a game that shows that you should be nice to people. Well, yeah, you should, you know, yeah. it, it's not. No, I don't think anyone wakes up in the morning and goes, do you know what, I'm really going to just annoy everybody today. I don't know a few, I know a few people. <laughs> I, I've done it myself where I've been like, oh, it's funny to wind this person up, but I've never done that in the intent of hurting them. Mm. So I think it's very much a case of like, we don't need to tell each other that we shouldn't hurt each other. But I still would stand behind making a game that emphasising that. Because yeah. I think something, again, complacency is a big issue in this world. And I think something that we forget is what we call um, common sense, isn't it? Mm. We think we're born with common sense. But common sense is definitely a taught thing. It's I think, developed over. Yeah. yeah. Like, I think, if anything, that is something about your environment that says a lot about your common sense. Yeah. Because if you're brought up in the right environment, you'll have great common sense. If you're not, like anything else, if you're in a bad situation, you'll have bad relations to that. Mm-hmm. so I think that's something again I, I've had the argument probably with my sister far too many times oh it's just common sense it's like is it yeah. <laughs> is it just because you think yeah. it is <laughs> so with the um, just dying the back a little bit with the um, game uh, a word that you mentioned earlier was roguelike yes could you just explain a little bit about what that means yeah and then how Quicksmith is in that category and okay. what does it do to do so that? roguelike itself is supposed to be um around the idea of a never-ending dungeon so 
you 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 start at the beginning obviously and you keep going and you fight things and you defeat enemies and you keep going and you keep going but there is no end to that dungeon you will especially in video games you'll get a certain part you'll lose go back to the beginning start from scratch and it really comes down to that learn practice master that we learned a lot on mm. uni is that you learn the mechanics you practice them, you repeat them again and again, and eventually you master them, and then you get further. You'll come across a new mechanic that then you'll have to learn that one, practice it, and then master it. And it's that constant sort of... Um, imagine it like a rubber band on your back against the wall. You run, run, run as fast as you sure. can, and then it snaps your back. Yeah. And the next time you're stronger, so you run, 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 and you get maybe five metres the first time, seven metres. Yep. You keep pulling and pulling... Eventually, no matter what, you're always going to get sung back at the start. Okay. But one thing I really like about that genre, and this is kind of where we went, where we're going with Quicksmith, is that allows for a really easy gameplay. Like as a developer, that allows you to make something very simple, but have kind of this replayability and um, almost never-ending vibe to it. That I can always beat my last score. I got six days completed yesterday. I'm going to try for seven today. I'm going to try for eight. And maybe there's something, and this is obviously going back to the player issue, maybe there's something I can do that could improve it. Yeah. Uh, maybe I need an extra person because it's a one to four player type game. Maybe if I get four people, oh, but it's more difficult now. So there's there's a lot of cool elements to it that kind of really make the game enjoyable in just a play sense without having to kind of bring out a new expansion or bring out a new dungeon or a new shop or a new place or a new thing to go and mm -hmm. get. Um, the only thing with that is it very much is then has to be kind of like reward-based. You have to have a reason to do it, and it has to be a longer goal. So with Plate Up specifically, uh, what they do is over, over games you work an experience that experience turns into levels and as you level up you unlock more patterns and games being like uh, how you would refer to a run yes yes so yeah so uh the game so if it was a dun sorry but if it was so if it was a dungeon you would be going into that dungeon killing as many enemies as you can and then you die yeah and then you go back to the start of the dungeon upgrade your stuff whatever it is yeah and then go back and again. then go again so that that length is referred to as a run yes so quicksmith does this by having a day yes well it, it so the run is going through several days so each day will be serving a set number of customers okay. what they order yeah. and once you complete the day you'll get a rest period where you can pre prepare for the next day start the next one serve as many customers as required and you'll do that until you don't meet all the customers orders once you fail then you go back to day one so that's one run once you fail that run you'll accumulate some experience which will go into a level system outside of that run which then rewards the player so like I said, as plate up, they reward you more with um, new um, recipes to make. What oh, yeah. we're looking more into doing is, uh, some, something that I mentioned earlier was that I really like the interactable home and messing around within that. You can have your practice. And what, we, what we've said about is that what we want to do is kind of unlock some cosmetics for it. 
Mm. We haven't ironed out the details, and I've definitely had some conversations with players and stuff, that what we want to be able to do is kind of reward the player with some experience, that goes towards leveling the system, and then from that you earn rewards that you can then decorate your character, decorate your home, decorate your um, smithy sort of place, to kind of change the overall thing, and that's kind of then, again, going back to that player agency, you can design what it looks yeah. like. You can make your house, invite your friend round and go, look at this, I made this massive thing because I've done 16,000 runs and learned all this experience yeah. which has accumulated to all this. Um, which again, it, just, it comes back to that, like giving people more to do. And I think something that we've talked about in design, especially, is this makes it infinite. Yes. I can keep adding more levels, I can keep adding more rewards, it's just going to be a matter of developing and creating them and then implementing them into the game. And as long as we can continue to do that, the players can continue to play and, and gather yeah. from it. And I, I think back to games like um, Candy Crush and how many levels that has. And I think I finally heard after like three years of someone playing so I reached the end of Candy Crush. Yeah, I think um, I think it was a mother, actually. Mm. That used to play it like religiously. And it <laughs> got to the point. After children. Yeah, it, <laughs> but it got to it got to the point where the developers actually had to like continue to add levels yeah. just for her. <laughs> that's that's all it was. And I just thought that was quite wholesome, but it shows that if you do a learn practice master loop mm-hmm. correctly, it can go a long way. So when you was yep. doing the GDD, did you have that learn practice master loop? Yeah, in there. Yeah, straight yeah. away we were we were thinking about. And I think this kind of goes hand in hand with the roguelike yes. genre in yeah. itself. You have to think about how you are going to develop the game further than just the first run or the first day. <clears throat> As we're still in prototype, we have very limited uh, materials and options at the moment. But our plan is to kind of essentially grow as big as it can. Mm-hmm. Um, there are various different types of weapons out there. I mean, off the top of my head, you've got pole arms, daggers, shields, swords. That's not even talking about armour, helmets, gloves, chest pieces. These are all potential ideas that we can try and look into implementing that all just work off of the same thing. Our main issue with that kind of design is how the interactions in the game works because uh, something I've seen on quite a few games before is that if you have one way of making a pattern and then repeat that for something else, it can then obviously the game doesn't speak well to itself and it kind mm. of churns out the wrong thing. So you have to kind of be very careful that you don't get too lost in the development and something that I think we use a lot in the development term is feature creeping, you know, just adding yes. too many yeah. things into the pile can definitely kind of make it too complicated and too much. But having that balance and kind of having enough variation that kind of keeps the players going and more things to do. So what we've talked about uh, before is like once the game's finished, you know, I don't think we kind of want to end it there. And we want to kind of keep adding some new resources, adding some new recipes and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's definitely something that obviously it does kind of depend on how well the game is received and how the player feedback comes from it. But we definitely right from the beginning I've kind of been looking at like okay what are we working with and how 
how big could we make this? Yeah, because that more the long term vision. Yeah, I mean, this was I think the main reason why RGDD was kind of like shot almost shot down straight away. It was like too much. So yes, we have planned for a lot of things. Our only issue is time. Yeah, and that is something that we have to obviously manage ourselves when we're developing this. Is kind of go how much is possible to make. And I think one of the fortunate things, again, going back to like why we've picked this roguelike, is it's very easy to just kind of add something new that just slots in and the next one on the next one. Hmm. So when you're looking at like how many days are going are passing in the game, if you're getting to day eight, day nine, it's not it's not adding too much to change that to make it more difficult. But as a as a player, it can feel more rewarding by getting to that day nine. It's just a difference of an achievement of just like planning on how you got there um so we ended up making the game the prototype for that and then submitting it as our final submission for that university and how how was it received by the university what was the score that it got (laughs) (laughs) i was gonna say i'm not sure if i should mention the grades specifically but we're obviously quite open-minded anyway we um so out of a total 100 we got 90 percent for the game itself it's really um, damn good. It is. I don't know many people that have ever scored above ninety percent for anything. Yeah. I don't. I would love to hear scores of previous years and stuff to kind of really compare it and look yeah. and kind of analyze them a little bit better. Um, but that game, yeah, it, it was it, it was phenomenal. I mean, I don't want to knock any of the other games that were in our class because I think in their own right, some of them were really good and they had really good features. And for the amount of time that people had to development and the groups that they had to work with, it was still good. And bars definitely outshone a lot of the others. And I think it was just that pre-prep initial, making the GDD before the class even started, as well as having a really good group that works well together and melds well together. And yeah, kind of piggybacking off of the fact that there was two programs. I mean, we designed the game to be more programming heavy because we knew we were working with two programmers. I think as well, having that sort of like long-term vision where it we were, it was a good opportunity to make a prototype for a long-term game that we're then going yeah. to put into the market, whereas I think a lot of people just saw it as the last university project. Yeah, I mean, when we were introduced to that, pro- that project, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a minute, we were told initially that this has the opportunity to become a game to develop in a competition called Transfuser. Well, now's probably a good time to speak yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll come back to it in a second, because um, on top of that was then moving towards making and developing an indie company. We'd had a short course prior to that, which was all about how to build a company and what it's like in the industry. And for up about maybe a year before that point, me and a few other students had kind of talked about the idea and I think I was definitely more keen on it than everybody else hence why I kind of took on the the ownership of the company making that game developer company for and using utilizing some of the games that we made at uni and developing them further one thing we were told specifically at the game global game jam which is a good competition to make a game within 48 hours was that we couldn't own the rights to that game so when this course came along, it was our first opportunity to really go, no, we'll make a good game here. And then we have the potential to take that further and create the company with it. 
obviously since making the game and developing it the prototype a little bit further and having some sort of playtesting, we're now moving on to that point where we can kind of look to the full-time development and move on from there. But going back to Transfuser, the, the, the competition is, uh, I think it's run by the UK Games Fund, which is a global uh, funding opportunity for a lot of games companies. They work all across the country, if I'm right. Um, and every year they, they run a competition where I think it is designed for newly graduated, but I think you get up to maybe three to three five years. years. Three yeah, three years, years is it? Um, after graduation to submit a game idea and I think it's encouraged to be at concept not prototype not in development yet so that it's very much similar to that class but I know the previous years it's been encouraged that if you want to enter that contest if you're looking to start up an indie then you want to use that project start the prototype there and then kind of move it into the tra- into the competition where you've actually got some real opportunity to develop it further and kind of really polish up a good prototype. Um, so yeah, we, w- we were kind of told that early enough that we built Quicksmith in the idea of hopefully taking it to Transfuser, um, which was then during the summer, just after we finish our classes and our courses and we hand everything in before we actually graduate but I think the that first year is as long as you're graduating that year you're okay to enter yeah uh, obviously there is a lot of competition there's a lot of people that enter it I think um, I can't remember how many I think it's possibly about 20 groups go into the actual first think, stages I, of it I think yeah it's 20 groups actually get through mm-hmm. the selection process but I think I heard that if you just thought about it on average of every university in England submits one team yeah, on average, that'll give you a scale of how many people try to get into it. Yeah, I mean, when I was looking at the application, there was over 50 hubs, I believe. And a hub is a, typically a university, but it can be a company or something that is willing to be the person to kind of put your application forward. So they represent you as the company. Sure. As a sort of, I they I don't think they have any too much to do with it as such. They're just kind of like the pinpoint so that the UK Games Fund can kind of oh that's where they've come from, yeah. and it's a it's a form of sort of sponsorship. But I don't think there's any kind of like monetary value across there at all. Um, and obviously, yeah, the University of Suffolk, which is ours, was our hub, and I believe there was uh, three teams last year. That went and entered and this year I think there was supposed to be two but I'm not sure if there was just us in the end that kind of applied I think it was just us. but yeah like you say if there's 50 universities applying for it and they can only fit I mean it's dependent on how much money they've managed to get for the grants and stuff so if they only get 20 they could only get 10 they could only get five of that many people that have applied like 50 possibly even more because if it's not just graduates and it's alumni and stuff like that you could potentially get four or five from each university so there is competition and there's a a bit of a application process to go through which is quite daunting especially this is something I personally felt uh, at the time when you're midway through your final year it's quite daunting to fill out this long application form that isn't just 
Hi, can I make a game? It's tell me about the game, what's the mechanics, what's the unique selling point. Tell me about your company. Tell me about your company, who you're working for, what your roles are, what your responsibilities are, what your gaps are, where you might need additional support. Yeah, it, it went from like a university project to Dragon's Den quite yeah, quickly. Yeah, very rapidly. Yeah. And something I don't think they kind of prepared you enough for is just how much you had to do. Yes. Like, it's very separate. Like As much as the university introduced us to it, it's very separate, and they don't seem to kind of have much information going into it, and you kind of just have to attack it and kind of do your best, really. Um, I do think there was a lot of support classes and, like, how to apply, how to fill out the application form, but they're all very at this time, at this point of the day, and not to kind of cry a bit, but, like, I have personal responsibilities, so I could make a lot of them. Sure. So it's very much one of those things that... I think they did pre-record them, so that's good, but it's very difficult to kind of um, uh, attribute to everybody's needs and stuff, especially in that situation, especially when you're in the middle of finishing your dissertation and kind of getting on with your your own projects while trying to do this application form. So how much is up for grabs for transfuser winners? Well, not necessarily (laughs) winners, it's the people that are selected. So the people that are selected, and it does change every year, so like the number is kind of loose. Inflation may vary. Yeah, it can go up, it can go down. I don't, I, I think it's all government funded, so it's kind of like, how well is it going? If it's not going very well, we're not going to give you as much. If it's going well, we'll give you more. Um, right. I think last year was seven thousand five hundred, possibly. It was around. It was around the six to seven thousand mark, maybe a little bit around. Uh, I can't remember the exact. That number. was to go to people so that got selected to. That's go the initial amount given for the selected people. Now you get half of that day one when the uh, event begins, to kind of do what you want with, and then you get the other half at the end. And then I think it's the top three then get selected to get £25,000. That is more or less basically allowing you to kind of develop the next sort of three to six months, I'd like to say. I don't don't want to put too much time on it because 25000 and this is talking about paying people's wage at that point because that's what game development is. It's paying the people to actually spend the time to make it yeah. less than the components or material to put it together. Um, yeah, it doesn't really last that long. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it, it's, it's a large sum of money to an average person. And I think in the gaming world, it's a very small sum of money in reality terms. But you only get, like I said, about three, three and a half grand in that first month. And I believe the suggestion, don't take my word on this, is that the money there is to go mostly towards um, like the time that you are going to spend developing that game. Yeah. So I think, and I, I, again, I don't know the specifics. We didn't take part in this ones uh, this last year. I think you get about two months. So three grand paying a team of up to six people. It's not a lot of money. You're going to need a part-time job if you yeah. don't have other sources of money. You, you can't just live off your parents sort of thing. Um, you're going to need to 
be able to put the work in because again it's not just turn up with a prototype make it look a little bit better and and then there's also on top of that a lot of business stuff to do so something i would definitely tell people if they're thinking about the idea of creating a game development company is don't just go everything will sort itself paperwork legal ip intellectual property um finance and accounting all that stuff does have to be taken into consideration and that's so crucial for that part of the um journey through transfuser that they i think they give like a meeting nearly every two weeks or something where it's a sit down talk to somebody go through where you're at and what you've got to do and do some financial stuff do a business plan things it's like helpful that. to have that kind of thing in place anyway because yeah um not to segue into this but because we'll talk about it another time but we won a grant with another project that we're yeah. working on and we was able to get the money for that transferred pretty quickly because we already did have a company set up yeah and that kind of thing and it made yeah. it a lot easier so going forward not just transfuser yeah but pretty much any competition are going to want to know this type of thing yeah i Could mean you, you speak a little bit on what dundev is i, I i'm not huge on what Dun, the, so after transfuser is finished you've got last you've got the three winners from transfuser although because i'm again i don't know the specifics um, this was only just started properly this year and I think it starts in January so we've got a few weeks I think they've only just finished I don't even know if there's a, a winner yet for the transfuser um, that's currently gone on they've only just done Insomnia which was a few weeks ago um, but once you finish transfusion the three winners are selected I believe then they go to Dundev which is up in Scotland um, and they go there for a few weeks where they spend a time in a studio with other developers around. I think they get a lot of talks and a lot of help, but they're basically just there to kind of spend some time in the real world developing mm. projects. Um, I the know... person that won that, or won both of those, not this year, last year, was Alarming so, Ladders? So, no, so last year was different. This is why it's very difficult okay. to kind of talk about it. Last year... There were three winners of Transfuser, and then there was a fourth winner, which was Alarming Ladders, oh, okay. uh, who went on to do Dun Dundev. Now, I'm not sure on the specifics. You definitely have to speak to them. I've, I've heard a few stories a couple of times in, uh, in passing. But from what I understood, they won that as like a, we want you to win, but we want you to win this okay. instead yeah. kind of thing. This is, a, this is an opportunity that we're looking at, that we're going to try and do for next year. Here, you sort of go and see it. And they went up to Dundee. They spent a few weeks there. They've got a lovely talk about it, I believe, on their um, on their socials and that, of their experience. Um, but this year, I believe, all three winners go to Dundee for another chance to win 25,000. Again, I don't know the specifics. So if you were to go through Transfuser, be selected as the finalist for that, mm -hmm. win the money for that, and then go on to Dundee as well, the, the whole the, yeah possibly in in theory yeah i don't want would... to take my word for it because it's a lot of... of course yeah it's but it's more just in theory that would really help yeah. set up an indie studio yeah i mean before actually getting a real publisher for your game yeah i mean this is this is definitely kind of down the avenue of going self-funded to a point as much as it's grant money so it's yeah. not you've earned it yourself um it's definitely 
I think getting to that position where you could win Dunlop, if that is the way it's done and you get up to nearly £60,000 in total over that time, chances are you've spent that money already during that time because you've already kind of put the effort in and now you're having to pay each other and kind of pay some reasonable amount of a um, wage for the people working on the project. At that kind of point, you're going to be either... You should really be at the point where you're able to sell the product. Mm. And I think, obviously, it does depend on the, the game, and I definitely think something that um, trans user could do with is probably following up more on their winners and talking about their journeys thereafter the competition... Yeah, because I'd be very curious. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I have been meaning so many times, but I honestly have been wrapped up in EDS or stuff yeah. to, to not kind of dig too much in other people's business. But to hear how their stories are going would be quite inspiring, especially for new people coming in. It's like, yeah. oh wow, they've made it past their first year. Oh wow, they've made it past their second year. Their games for sale because, and I'm I'm following Transfuser. I, I'm trying to keep up to date with them including the uk games fund but there's a lot of kind of um we're sponsoring and we're doing this and we're doing that but i don't really see a lot of uh these are the people that did this and now they're doing that let's do a sit down with them and have a little i mean realistically a company like that should have a podcast that'd be amazing because this week we're doing Transfuser. We're going to talk to some of the contestants, get a few of them online, get a few of them in person, sit down and actually talk to them. How's the journey going? How's the development going? Because this is a short amount of time. And going back a little bit, when you apply for Transfuser, there are a lot of people on there that are just, I would like to start a, an indie company. I don't have an idea yet. Mm. And they, they fully endorse the idea that you can turn up to there without an idea. And I, I find it very difficult to understand how you... Because, dial it back a bit further, the last year's one went to EGS. No, EGX. I'll get that right. <laughs> the um, gaming convention yeah, of EGX. EGX, yeah. That was in London. Uh, they attended that, and there were some phenomenal games there. They were A lot of them were really highly polished. I, I loved... Uh, I liked quite a few of them. They were clear bugs. They were all prototypes, so you don't expect perfect game. But there was some really nice um, polished stuff there. And I, I, I question how how many of them came from nothing before that. Mm. Um, again, it's like doing a small project in eight weeks, doing a small project in 48 hours. Any of our games from the Global Game Jam were never were always buggy. Of course. We're never complete and barely even a game. I know that's supposed to be a prototype, but like, it's very difficult to kind of think, yeah, I'm going to have something finished by the end of that. And then, like I said, getting to the end of Dundev and having 60,000, you know, let's just say that is the number, £60,000 by that point, when you started back in, I believe it starts in July, that's six months, £60,000 of paying six people. It's not a lot of money. So... I don't know how many people do it, but at that point you kind of want your game to be made and flushed and ready to go. Yeah, because so. once that runs out, then you want game sales to be taken over. Yeah. Publisher deals need to start taking yeah. over. And may, it and gives you a window of opportunity. I, I definitely know, talking to Alarm Ladders, one of the best things about the whole event is the networking. 
the amount of people you meet, the amount of people that you get. I, I've, I've heard of a lot of people going to game dev conventions. And I think my only kind of um, frustration with them sort of things is that there's very few locally, for starters, and they are quite expensive to just attend. Mm. So when you look at the financial cost of it, you really have to still have some financial backing to be able to go, yeah, we're going to go to this convention, that convention, this convention. Mm-hmm. I mean, half of them happen in America. Half of them happen in Europe. It's not cheap flights yeah. <laughs> every day to go wherever you want. And again, if, you, if you're going to sit there and say, well, I'm going to start up a company, you do need some kind of financial. And I can't sit here and say, like, oh, that's the easy part. That is the hardest. Yeah. Honestly, if you're a competent game designer, if you're a competent programmer, starting a company's fine. It's funding the company that's yeah. going to be your biggest trick. And is this when you'd say sort of like freelance work could come into it? Um, I definitely think so. I, I've, I've heard a lot of stories from a lot of um, indie companies that they definitely start off doing a lot more freelancing um, for other people. I've also heard uh, something that I think is quite interesting, a lot of umbrella um, companying yep. where obviously you join forces with another company although you're still a separate entity you then might take on some of their work they might help you with your work and it can just give you that initial some essentially it's a little bit like publishing but um, it can be a lot more forgiving and if you get the right deal and you talk to the right people you can definitely get the financial aid which is again like I said very important Something um, I like to talk about is most businesses don't actually require that much money up front. They might need, oh, I need a bit of money to get my advertising or my marketing and stuff like that. And it's a huge part of most businesses because getting your name out there is a lot more important than actually what uh, what your business looks like as such. But when it comes to game development and it comes to a lot of R&D, which is research and development, projects is there's an initial upfront cost and that could be in the hundreds of thousands before you even start making a sales yeah you know i think it's very clear that a game can take two to three years to make but it won't see a profit and <laughs> yeah and especially the game company yeah won't see a profit for a long time yeah especially if you get a publishing deal or even investors and stuff like that you are you obviously uh, an investor you're going to have to pay that back first so you won't see a single penny of profit until then yeah. um, or un- unless you get a, a shareholders agreement sort of thing but even then at that point when you're a small company and you, you know making your first game you're not going to make GTA 6 yeah. kind of money on your first game right? unless you get really lucky like Minecraft um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's kind of that situation where uh, it's very easy to get lost in the idea of, oh, I'm going to make a game, it's going to be amazing, it's going to be fun. The countless people I have heard that have said, like, oh, I'm going to make a card game. And it's like, good luck with that. Card yeah. games are extremely complicated and the amount of effort you need to put in, just the idea of making a game to compete with someone like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Magic the Gathering. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry. I, 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 I appreciate. I look at a lot of games and see a lot of things that oh, I do that differently. I do this differently. But I would probably never want to get into the idea of making a card game. Yeah. Just because 
your competition is tough. There are a lot of strong card games that have big um, audiences, and starting off nothing like it's it's just going to take years yeah. to really get off the ground, and that's just a game that because there's a lot of um, uh, interactions within card games that you have to start thinking about, and again, something I definitely see in a lot of specific games are the interactions go wrong go back bug fix fix yeah. a bug fix, I mean, they're notorious for having problems but um something i just wanted to sit and talk to you about really mainly for the for the rest of the podcast is is sort of the post-university life and especially with having an indie company and now obviously we've got quicksmith we didn't go to transfuser yeah. so now we're having to um, go to other networking events, pursue other types of grants, um, and try and build up that. And then obviously we've got team morale, yeah, uh, money, and things like that. So how have you found it? What's sort of the biggest challenges? Well, I think partly highlighting their funding is the biggest challenge, hands down, with that because the the hardest thing from the day you leave is having the funds to then kind of sit there and go okay we've finished college now i'll start paying you mm. and unless you've sat on a wealthy fortune or your parents have handed you down this money you haven't i think every one of us has got some kind of part-time full-time job that we're trying to keep ourselves afloat you know mm -hmm. keep the uh roof over our head foods in our belly basic necessities met now on top of that you're trying to like myself i have parental responsibilities so my personal time is limited. You don't want to hit things like burnout, which I definitely think is the first thing that really hit us all on yeah. that day of like finishing. I don't think any of us really got over that until somewhat close to graduation. Um, definitely. For context, graduation was in October, so it was only last month. Um, and we finished just the beginning of July, I believe. It was that first week in July, I think it was, that we finally had yeah, something like that. And that isn't even including things like resets and that. But that kind of first few weeks is just an absolute exhaustion. Yeah. You are, I'm done, I'm finished, I don't want to wake up tomorrow, I don't want to get on, I don't want to see another essay in my entire yeah. life again. And... You kind of have to pick yourselves up a bit, especially if you want to run an indie company. You can't afford to sit there and kind of give up and rest and all that much. It's the time as well when you really need to be applying for graduate programs. Yeah. I mean, if that's the route you want to go down, that's the time when you really need to be doing that. So the last thing you need to do is have a break. Yeah. But we all just want a break at that yeah. point. Um, yeah, it's it's been a... I would say it's definitely been a balancing act. I think doing things like podcasts breaks things up really well. Mm. Kind of adds a bit of change to, your, route, to your, your normal day. Adds a bit of routine and stuff. Even this, like the socialising through the podcast is a great way to kind of catch up and talk to people. Because yep. it's very easy when you're working with somebody to kind of go work, work, work. Especially in sort of our dynamics where we don't really have set working hours... So it's work while you can, make sure you get some rest in there, and then obviously still pay your bills and stuff. And 
this kind of moment where we can kind of sit down, catch up, chat about stuff, do a podcast, kind of get these deep thoughts out of um, is really good. And it's a great reflection time as well. Um, I think something that people talk about a lot nowadays, and I'm glad people do, is like the fear of failure and stuff like that. The, the amount of no's you get from people versus that one yes that actually gets you a publishing deal or some kind of grant or some funding to keep you going or to be able to fund something is very destructive for a lot of people. And it really takes a lot of willpower to keep going. Um, luckily for me, I'm very stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> so... People saying no is just kind of like, okay, I'll just go and ask somebody else. Yeah. It's a numbers <laughs> and, game. Yeah, and it's just keep going and keep going until, you know, eventually you do get there and you get somewhere with it. A lot of that comes from research. You have to kind of do the player research, get some feedback from your games, actually get out there in the real world, attend some events, speak to people. I think some of the networking events through the university have been really good. We've met some really phenomenal people that can certainly make a huge impact. And without them, you know, you'd be on your own trying to figure this out. So I think motivation plays a big sort of uh, difficulty when you're post-university. Again, the financial side of that is a big impact. But something that we've done recently is a motivational mapping training. And hands down, that is a really good course to go on. Mm. I think it's really opened my own eyes on like how to actually understand how to run my day just because of how motivated I am as a person. And how you work on as individually to you. Yeah, because yeah. I am not a massive money man. I'm not sitting here thinking I need 10 flashy cars and a mansion. I'm motivated much more by the work that I am doing and who I'm doing it with. And that is two factors that really stand out to me. So as long as they meet a minimum criteria, my motivation levels are through the roof. Mm. But on situations, and I've had this, this is one of the reasons going back to kind of like why I started or wanted to start my own business. Working for somebody else can be so mentally draining because if you give up ideas or if you, you, you suggest stuff that could make the work a lot better and they just shoot you down... You try and be proactive, you try and be a team player and other people aren't. It can really demote you. Something I struggled with a lot was somebody that doesn't pull their own weight. And I don't mean doing 110% pushing, pulling everything. But in a day, if you get 10 phone calls and you're answering phone calls as a job and you're answering all 10 and somebody else isn't even answering one, there's a problem. And when people don't listen to you, about that being a main problem, they wonder why you quit. Yeah. And when I know some companies love retention rates being really low and they like to get new hires in every six months, three months, whatever, fresh minds, whatever. But when you look at like the costs of training, hiring and running them through how you work and your procedures, the cost of hiring somebody new at a competitive rate over hiring somebody that you've already been working with and making a few accommodations or having an adult conversation with them, it's a no-brainer. Mm. But it surprises me how a lot of people just kind of stare at you blankly and kind of give you that impression that, well, was it my concern? 
So well, I'm coming to you because it is a thing that is affecting me. And if I'm demotivated, I'm less productive. If I'm less productive, you're less profitable. And they don't see that knock-on effect a lot of the time. And it's only when they see the knock-on effect that yeah. they start kind of grilling you and going, well, why aren't you achieving better? Why aren't you doing better? So because of that, keeping up motivation and agency of people yeah. is probably very, very important for EGS. Yes. And obviously having burnout from university and now I think people are really starting to bounce back. Yeah, I definitely think this is the time of year. I mean, we've had a lot of conversations about like where we at and where do we want to be. We kind of give ourselves deadlines of two weeks, four weeks and stuff like that. And when we don't meet them, it's very easy to see that as a demotivator. Mm. But I think, again, because we're all so very open and honest with each other, we go, no, I haven't been able to do it. Or, sorry, I've been very busy this week. Or this has happened and that's happened. We just kind of go, well, it's okay. Let's re-look at where we are and see if we can make any adjustments. I mean, we talk about it all the time. Is there anything I can do to help you? Is there anything mm. you can do to help me? If I've got 50 hours to do this week, you've got 10, you taking 10 of my hours type thing, it's going to make a hell of a difference to me. Yeah. But for you, it might not. Mm. And it's just that case of, I think it really helps when you do have a good team to work with each other and good people to rely upon. And an honest, honest team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean... Something I've probably noticed most of my life is we are very good at lying as individuals. Mm. Everyone everywhere spreads lies like it's wildfire, but being honest with people, which actually gets results a lot of the time, yeah. is very difficult. So I, I really do appreciate when the people I work with and people I know, I can be honest with them and they know that I, you know they're going to be honest with me too. And it's just like, yeah, this is a bit of a shit situation, yeah. but... Let's deal with it and move on. I like um, something that Jordan Peterson says, uh, and he's saying that he's been a clinical psychologist for over 30 years, 40 years probably now at this point. But he was saying that um, in his clinical practice, he never saw someone get away with lying ever, even once. Mm. It never happened. It will always either come back to bite you in the ass, or it will be something that you promised over here, and then they go, oh, do you remember that? And then you go, no, because it's not a real memory. Yeah. made it up so it's not going to come to mind then they go oh that person was lying oh they let me down again mm. so just being honesty is the best policy really is the best policy and it helps you and your team sort of grow together going yeah. forward just by being honest and the the hard bit about being honest is sometimes honesty hurts yeah especially at the start and you don't know how to phrase something you don't know how to say it but that little bit of pain at the start is better than the bigger pain of you making a lie, getting down the line, people realising that it's a lie and it's not going to work, that is way worse than the early pain. I know it's a bit of a segue, but the way I always kind of look at it, it's like starting a new relationship. Hmm. If you, knowing that down the line you're going to be spending the rest of your life with this person, cover all of your insecurities and all of your flaws, when they get those few years down the line, it's going to hurt a lot more than being upfront and honest. Mm -hmm. And it, it's almost like, um, I don't really want to like bash this too much, but it's like the idea of wearing makeup on that first date. I honestly think... Like proper heavy makeup. Yeah, I yes. think like going on that first date completely no makeup, your actual self, casual wear as well. You know, they, we should really like 
change the way the first date is perceived. Go, this is me. I'm wearing a baggy shirt with some jogging bottoms. And, yeah, I didn't wash today. I washed it today. <laughs> you know, it's something yeah. stupid yeah, as yeah. that. It's like, let's just show you what yeah. the bar is at its lowest. My, 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 my sort of pushback on that, because I do kind of agree, mm. but I think it should be the best version of you that's attainable possible. So if yeah. that was so if it was for me, instead of being in baggy clothes, I like to wear my tweed jacket, yeah. my white shirt, my nice watch, my nice shoes, that kind of thing. And it's like this is me when I'm at my absolute best. Yeah. This is how I look. And I think the whole idea is that if you're if you're in a partnership with someone and they help accent your perfect best, well not perfect best, but your best, that's the type of person that they'll see more often. Yeah, I mean, I, I, can, I can get behind that. I, I'm, I'm always tempted to kind of say, at your best, the best you on that first date and then the worst you on that second. Because I really like the well, same... Well, that's what... I know you, what you mean, but if you dial it back over time, so like do it yeah, as but, the best, <laughs> then the second best, then the third best, <laughs> then the fourth best, and then like by date 10... But that's what like I feel like is misery. happening at the moment. It's like yeah. we try to present the very, like prettiest version of ourself to begin with and we hide all of our flaws and then we slowly release them and that's where I think the fallacy comes in because you slowly release them that eventually something pushes that boundary and I definitely think this is more typical in stereotypical men um, if you if you kind of sh- oh, I don't know where I was going with that thought to a point you show where you're if you if you lower the expectations and kind of present more of a reality early on, then you're much more likely to go, well, you, you're only going to get better type thing, mm. right? But I, what I was going to talk about is the saying I really like is, if you can't handle me at my worst, you don't deserve me at my best. Mm. There's a lot of misconception with that saying, because I've seen this on online threads and stuff when I've used that exact line. It's like, well, your worst could be horrible and stuff like this. It's like, yeah, but if you can't accept me for who I am when I'm at my worst, when I'm having that kind of behaviour that you deem is crossing that line, then you need to realise that that could be every day for an entire month and you've got to live with that. Yeah. But you should be kind of at least understanding there the difference between my best and my worst and I think that's kind of where that saying comes in because if I do turn up scruffy on that second date versus the first date and you know again we normalize it so we know that that's going to happen I can kind of gauge very early on okay I don't think I can deal with this you're an absolute wreck and I'm not into that kind of emotional torment we'll stop it here yeah that's a lot better than Three years down the line, five years down the line, ten years down the line, and then you know even you got kids, and now you're going through a separation and divorce and things like that. That just adds so much more crap to the pile. Mm. That to be honest, if we could normalize this whole yeah, let's just show you what I'm like right at the beginning and be honest and be open and be like this is where I could be all the time if all my needs are met. This is where I will be if none of them are met. And then, again, I'll, I'll go to this in a second. Um, then sort of, like, normalise over time. But what that allows is if you talk about your needs and your wants and your desires and you actually be open and honest with each other, 
then you will form a healthy relationship. And something I heard, I can't remember who it was, and my brain's telling me it was Kevin Hart, but it could be somebody completely different, said about dating should be the time for all the difficult conversations. Mm. Your relationship should be the time for the lovey-dovey romance time. Because you need to know how this person's going to handle stressful environments, what their likes are, what their dislikes are, what they're like in a jealousy moment. You know, if a girl starts hitting on me and she attacks her and I don't want that, then that needs to be found out really early on. Because if that's going to break a 10-year relationship, that's going to be destructive as anything. But early on, sort of developing those conversations, having that realistic and honesty, means you can go wild in the relationship and have all the fun and the dates to Paris and this, that, the other, and enjoy each other's company. Because really, the relationship should be about enjoying each other's company than finding out that you've been hiding this horrible illness your entire life and it's going to affect you every day. Mm. I mean, even explaining to people how you are without kind of labelling it as such isn't a bad thing. I think it's very reasonable to kind of turn around and say, oh, I don't like things that are soft. Cool. Mm. Let's move on. You know, like, I'll take a note. You don't like things that are soft. That, there could be many reasons to why, but identifying that and kind of dealing with that is such an easy thing to kind of do that yeah. it surprises me almost that we don't normalise that. And I think there's probably, we could both talk about uh, um, how it is down to a lot of fear and stigma around how it's perceived mm. because I think a lot of people are very um, judgmental when they don't mean to be. Yeah. I think something I find very often is people laugh at something someone said without even acknowledging the idea of what that laugh would have. Uh, something I see with my kids all the time. If my daughter trips over, my son will laugh at her. She will cry because he's laughing at her. I'm yeah. sorry, but we've all watched them videos on YouTube where children's fallen over. It's funny. It's hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen the type of video. But that person is probably distraught. And again, like, yeah. it's, it's a situation that you can see that the perspective there is watching someone fall over is a lot funnier than falling over yourself. Mm. But it does come down to how we see it and how we treat it in a society, doesn't it? So. Do you know my uh, favourite quote for sort of like relationship advice is it's not about who you want to spend Friday night with, it's who you want to spend all day Saturday with. Yeah. And I think that's such a good quote for like finding out, is this person the right person for me? Yeah. It's like, do you want to spend Friday night with them or do you want to spend all day Saturday with them? And then that can really put in perspective. But I love this little bit of ramble about relationships. <laughs> right, right at the end of quite a serious podcast. Um but yeah, unless you had anything else that you wanted to add. <laughs> no, um, there, there's a lot we could talk about going back over this topic. And I think I'd definitely love to hear if anybody has any questions. If if there is any before the next one, I think that's definitely something we could kind of yeah go over. But we're definitely up for kind of coming back to this because... I think it's good. This is something we like we've said here. Honesty is really good. 
and talking openly about these kind of things, making it more normal to just kind of go, there are struggles in this industry. Mm. There are things to do in this industry. There are great opportunities too. But I think we really want to use this time to talk about us as a company, us as people, and try and uh, connect with people. Something that I've said very early on is the company isn't just another company, another name to plaster up there i want it to be imbued involved in the in society i want to impact people's lives i want to be known not for me but for the company and how it affects people and how it strives to do stuff mm. for people and i think that's the only thing that that i kind of keep going for myself is that we will make a difference mm. it might take time it might take dedication but we will get there and that helps with, you know, people sharing it and talking about it and engaging with us and telling us how we can do things better. I will never, never stop somebody from talking ne negatively about me. I might not read it. It might be too hurtful. But if you've got something negative to say, it's worth saying. Because yes. it comes back to that fail, fail faster thing. If I'm doing something wrong, but I don't know ignorant and i'm just going to carry on doing it yeah i think fail faster is how we both end up living our lives really yeah but yeah but it was good to chat to you again i think um next episode i'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this but i think a good reddit episode would be good mm. which would be i think it's something we said either in episode two or three um about a game and it was a, a racing game and it had a ghost in the game and it was how the son yeah, playing the game could remember, remember his father. So I'd like to find, as game developers, for us to give our take on these type of stories that are yeah. on Reddit and we'll try and find some. So if we spend the next sort of two weeks trying to see if we can find some good articles, post them in the Discord and then we'll, we'll have a chat about it next episode. Sounds good. Yeah. All right, mate. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Obviously, you can find all of our socials linked in the description. Do send us an email if you have anything you would like to have.